1: This is a place where free thinkers of every stripe can gather. Matter of fact, uh, the the term wrong thinker is actually kind of a badge of honor for those who find their way to this program, and I'm glad that you're one of those people. I'm here to uh, share a message of encouragement as well as hopefully a little bit of light and knowledge about what's going on in the world around us with people who are humble in spirit, honest in heart, and determined no matter what's going on around us to become the best person you can become and make a difference in the world in a way that only you can. I know it sounds like a daunting task, yet here we are. Shall we get started? Our program is brought to you by great sponsors like lifesavingfood.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, HSLAMO.com, Sewing and Quilting Center.com, and Monticello College.org. Man, it's always a challenge trying to narrow down this this incredible flood of information coming at us 24-7. And with all the stuff that's going on, ah, the Super Bowl was going on, and I think it's Los Angeles that's paying the price for winning right now, you know, the riots and people looting and whatever. Hey, we're celebrating. What a great thing. Smash! Here we go. There's also great tension in Ukraine, where apparently the U.S. government has been trying to convince everybody, Russia's going to go to war. Russia's going to go to war. I don't, I don't want to sound indifferent because I know a number of people who have family who are from Ukraine. I have know people who serve missions in Ukraine who, you know, have ties to this country. But I'll tell you right up front, I'm very skeptical that this has anything to do with what uh, what America should be sticking its nose into. I, I just, I don't see it. And in fact, I see a lot of agitation and a lot of meddling On the part of Washington, D.C., particularly the the Biden administration, that seems to be starting a conflict. And I I couldn't for the life of me figure out why would they want to do that. Unless it's to distract from other problems, which there are some pretty interesting things coming out here at home. Uh, Just, you know, a quick look at the news headlines. The Trump campaign was spied on in 2016. Trump himself was spied on in 2016. Even as president, he was spied on. And this is finally coming to light. So there, there is still the possibility that some people who are just so above the law <clears throat> may find themselves held accountable. But I'm not going to talk about any of those things here at the moment. Instead, I want to talk a little bit about how, uh, well, how quickly the science has spun in a different direction. I don't know if you're getting dizzy, but uh, wow, the about face on lockdowns and mask mandates. And just as a nod to the Super Bowl, if you watch the Super Bowl and you paid attention. Who were the people who were wearing masks Right, the youth chorus? Oh, well, we go. They're kids. We better put them in masks. I, maybe I'm reading more into it than I should, but that sure seems like, uh, well, they're young. They're still impressionable. Let's get them used to their muzzles now. So that we don't have to train them or try to retrain them as adults. But the celebrities, most of the crowd, I mean, <clears throat> anybody who looked at the crowd at that Super Bowl, and I I just watched a few minutes. My daughter was really interested. She wanted to watch it, so I just was looking around to see, okay, how many people are masked up? Cause, you know, California and and Los Angeles in particular have a reputation of really being, you know, hardcore on, well, we gotta follow all the protocol, we gotta follow the science. Sure didn't see very many masks, though. Not if you're important enough. There's no masks for you. I I don't know how anyone with a straight face could say, oh, yeah, there's still a pandemic going on. I'm sorry. Behavior outweighs words. And if the people who are pushing for these mandates, and that includes the mayor of of Los Angeles and Ellen DeGeneres and other celebrities who were there. If they are if they really believe that, oh, yeah, there's still great risk. Why wouldn't they stay home? Why wouldn't they mask up? Why wouldn't they, you know, be socially distanced? They weren't. Your actions, not your words. Tell me how you really feel about that. But when you consider who's doing all the spinning now on uh, how, well, the science has changed, (laughs) it's very clear what we're experiencing is something like election year science in amnesia nation. I've got a great blog entry here from The Good Citizen. This is a Substack account, probably worth your time to subscribe to. I mean, this is really good stuff. And it's titled, Election Year in Amnesia Nation, Following the Politicians, Following the Science, Following the Polls, which I think is a pretty accurate description. The Good Citizen writes, they want us to forget quickly their transgressions and tyrannies. They want us to forget the past two years ever happened. You can see the slithering and maneuvering everywhere, except in the offices of Fidel Castro Jr. up north, intent on tripling down on his race to the political graveyard on behalf of his private eucalyptus whisker of the genevois bathhouses for Bond villains. Now, as for the rest of them, they've received their memos and simultaneously converged the functionaries into their expertly rehearsed and choreographed Gaslight Formations. Their talking points are well-synced as they slither on the cable shows with mumblings of tremendous, wonderful news about how the science has suddenly and magically changed. In your favor, good citizens, as predicted, right on schedule, they want you to thank them for it. Like armed robbers who pilfer your home, tie up your kids, execute grandma with medicine, and then return two years later to take all your things, they want you to be grateful for returning what was never theirs to take. I realize that might sound harsh, but I think that's accurate. The Good Citizen says the magic of election year science. Presto, your liberties will soon be yours again. Your child will stop being abused. Not yet, but soon. The science says we must let the child abuse continue a little longer in blue states. Something stinks so nauseatingly with rot, and it's not just the rigor mortis and accident morgues near the soccer stadiums. They think they rule a nation of amnesiacs. They think they can turn the giant listing plandemic freighter around on land with its fractured hull and simply push back out to sea for a relaxing voyage, believing that you'll forget it was they who got drunk with power in the pilot house and steered us intentionally into those rocks. Spilling liberties and lives across the shoreline to save the planet while laughing with glee and patting themselves on the back for following the science. Now, they think you'll forget the war they've declared on your mind and soul. They want you to believe it's over, and they want you to thank them for it. To quote the great first blood monologue in uh, regards to defunct liberal democracies of the West declaring war on their own people, what I've called our silent war, nothing is over, nothing. You don't just turn it off. This wasn't my war. You asked me. I didn't ask you. I did what I had to do to win, but somebody wouldn't let us win. Well said, John Rambo. Now, just as an aside here, I think there's there's a lot of truth to to this idea that, well, oh look, we've given you back some of this, some of your rights, some of your freedoms, some of your ability to make decisions for yourself. And I think what a friend of mine had had noted just a couple of weeks ago. This was on an unrelated manner, but but the mindset that's that's at stake here. I don't know if if you're if you're a member of uh, Frontside Firearms Training Institute. You probably received a very uh, very uh, strong email about a month ago announcing how all the lifetime memberships were suddenly going to be converted into monthly subscriptions. And if you didn't pay 50 bucks a month and a whole bunch of other fees, I mean basically the the cost of taking classes there went ridiculously off the charts. And and the the founder was blaming everybody who didn't chip in on his lawsuit in which which I guess he lost, you know, against uh, somebody who he was having a legal battle with over control. Front Sight. And it was, uh, you know, it was pretty much, you know, you guys didn't come through for me. So now I'm going to have to turn around and take this all away from you and extend it's all going to change. And, you know, I, I just kind of went, okay, well, then I've taken my last class there. Fine. <laughs> That's the way it is. But then a couple of weeks later, and I guess there was quite a bit of outrage from Front Sight students they and and members they the, the founder walked it back well you know okay i've heard you please and i'm going to go ahead and do this and you know made some concessions and here's the key my friend who i pointed that out to and and who had once worked there i just said well what do you think about this and he says yes it's almost like like a god he heard our cries and decided to give us back a little bit of what we once had and i see that very same mindset at work amongst the political class. Not only are we not supposed to acknowledge, hey, you are the guys who are making decisions that were ruining people's lives, destroying their businesses, destroying their mental health, forcing things on them that they did not want forced on them. But because you're going to relent a little bit, we're supposed to be grateful. We should fall at your feet and say, oh, thank you. Thank you so much. You know, I don't want to be a vindictive person and I don't want to to bring more anger to an already angry world, but I'm not ready to forgive and forget on this. Or I, I'll forgive, but I'm certainly not going to forget, and I'm certainly not going to allow any person who abused their power. I'm not going to give them any credibility. They have no authority, and they do not have my consent <clears throat> because of their abuse of power. And that's an attitude I hope more people will get.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian
1: Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. One of our sponsors is lifesavingfood.com. I shouldn't have to point out, in fact, I I hope it doesn't sound like I'm, I'm being pedantic to say... You know, food storage is a really great idea. You've been watching the rising prices at the grocery store. You probably already understand. Those costs are going up. Inflation, I don't know what the current rate of inflation is, but it's definitely going on. Every trip to the store is a new experience in sticker shock. And heaven help you if you are looking for a car, whether it's a new or a used car right now. Holy smokes. I mean, it's it's a painful experience. But, you know, these are the times we live in. You know you're going to need food. You know that that is one of the essential necessities of life. So I'm going to try to make the case here that when you purchase long-term food storage, and I'm talking stuff with a 25-year shelf life, you are locking in food that you're going to eat at some point, whether it's in an emergency or in good times, you know, as you're rotating through your supply. But you're locking it in at today's prices with the understanding that those prices are not likely to come back down. Not for the foreseeable future. So this is a good investment of your money. It's a good investment in your peace of mind. But the most important thing to me is it gives you the option of saying no when someone comes along offering help with a bunch of strings attached. You can stand on your own feet and say, no, we've got it covered. Move along. <laughs> That's a good feeling. Click on the link in the show notes at com. It's lifesavingfood.com. Reach out and tell Kendall, hey, Brian was talking about you. You can even tell him what he says makes sense. So I'm here to get some food storage. By the way, I referenced in uh, the last segment, election year science in amnesia nation. And I've got a link to that in the show notes as well. Strongly recommend you take a look at this. This is from the Good Citizen Substack. And it's 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 harsh in the sense that it, it does not uh, try to soft pedal. Well, you know, the political class they did the best they could, and we should probably feel sorry for them. I mean, it must really weigh on them how they had to impose all those restrictions and punishments on us, and how they had to coerce us into doing things that we really didn't want to do. I think uh, I think you'll find it a very informative article, and it's well written. And uh, I won't go into any more detail because it is a fairly lengthy article. But the, the bottom line here is we cannot forget. We cannot say, well, you know, the science has changed in our favor, so therefore everything's good. No, the science didn't change. What happened is the lies stopped working. And it was starting to show up in political polling and those who are, you know, scrambling to hold on to their existing political power and maybe even grab a little bit more. They recognize, oh, we are in danger. The public is fed up. I mean, what you see happening in Canada is just a microcosm of what is happening in nations all around the world. The people are getting tired of being trampled on and their governments, for the most part, are turning a deaf ear and telling them, shut up. We know what's best. So now that the science has suddenly changed for an election year, let's not forget that uh, there was still some very real wrongs that were done. And the people who are responsible for that, the ones who implemented those decisions, the ones who enforced those decisions, should very likely be removed from power and never allowed to hold that kind of power again. I know it sounds harsh, but they've, they've shown their abusive nature, this is not a time to reward it with, okay, okay, we'll give you a second chance. I wouldn't do it. Not on a bet. All right, shifting gears. Kind of a pun here because I'm going to talk about the truckers in Canada, but it's hard to recognize sometimes when a truly historical moment is taking place, especially when you're in the midst of it. Now, I have had one experience in my life where there was no doubt in my mind that I was standing at a pivot point in history. And not everybody's going to agree with the example that I'm about to share with you, but I'm going to share it anyway just because um, it was a very, I won't say it was just a profound experience. It was a life-changing experience in that I was never the same person after that day. And I'm talking about April 12th of 2014. That was the day that uh, the standoff down at Bundy Ranch took place. And as I was uh, traveling down there, I had been down there a couple of days before just to go see. A friend and I went down to, to go see what's happening. I wanted to see all of the roads blocked off. I wanted to see the free speech zones. I wanted to see, is the BLM really set up out here like some kind of a military occupation force? And it was true. They were. What I saw there was absolutely, you know, it, it was like it was like driving into an occupied country. Very strange feeling. Every single hilltop had a vehicle with men with rifles sitting in it. Every track out there in the desert was posted. No trespassing by order of the government. This has been closed. And everything was so official. And then they, you know, the BLM task force was going after anybody. Some kid going to check his beehive. Boom, they're right on him. Guns pointed, face in the dirt, you know, threatening the crap out of him. It was, it was surreal. But when I went back two days later, I don't know how to describe this, but there was something in the air. There was, uh, there was a tension to where you could almost just push against the air. It was so thick, and with that tension was a sense that there is something immensely important that is taking place here. This is much more than just some old rancher who's mad about the you know the BLM coming to take his cows away. It felt like something very historical was about to happen and i guess the scary thing for me at least at the moment was i couldn't tell is this a good thing is this a bad thing i don't know but you could just feel this this gravity of the situation and as that day played out it uh, boy it turned into something that was probably the most significant act of armed disobedience notice i didn't say insurrection that wasn't quite the buzzword that it is today but it was it was an act of armed disobedience probably not seen since uh, the war between the states i mean it was and and yet not a shot was fired but extremely significant and i'm just i i use this example to point out that what's happening right now in canada may be a similar situation i mean the truckers and the protesters, to their credit, have been peaceful. They've been well-behaved. They've been very principled, and they've also been very firm. But it's hard to recognize. You know, for us, it's just, well, there's a lot of honking of horns and people waving that maple leaf flag up there. And, you know, we wish them the best. But I think there is something truly historical taking place. And I've got a great article. I'm going to link to this in the show notes. It's called "Oh O Canada. Giles Hoffman is the author, and Giles is someone who's actually been there on the ground. And this is The reason I, I bring up Bundy Ranch in connection with this is because if I had to go on what the media, the mainstream media, had reported about uh, Clive and Bundy and about what happened on April 12th of 2014, I would have a very one-dimensional caricature of the people and the events involved. It would be almost cartoonish the way that it was described. But I had the luxury of actually going there myself. I had the luxury of being there with the source, talking with Ryan, talking with Ammon, talking with Cliven. And it makes all the difference in the world. Saw the same thing, you know, just a short time later at the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge when Ammon and Lavoie Finnegan and others occupied that refuge. What the media said was one thing, very sensationalized, hyper fearful, you know, terrorism, terrorism. Ah, They just couldn't get over the fact these are armed people. Yet they couldn't make the connection, you can be armed and you can be peaceful at the same time. But by going to the source, I was able to not only gain a better understanding for myself, but a much better, I was in a much better position to share that information with my listeners. And, you know, not even all my listeners agreed. There were still many who were like, nope, nope, nope. (laughs) <laughs> can't I can't go there, and I understand that. When we come back from the break, though, I want to share with you uh, some of the observations from Giles Hoffman, who, again, is on the ground with the Canadian truckers and is reporting, you know, from right there where it's happening. You may still disagree, but at least we'll have taken the pains of going to the source, and that's a better way to go.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is the Brian
1: Hyde show. And just like that, we are back. Hey, if you haven't subscribed to my show notes, I'm not saying they're going to change your world for the better, but they might just make all of your dreams come true. Notice I said the word might. I don't know what your dreams are, but if if you're looking for a more in-depth dive into current events from a more principled and less partisan standpoint, this is what I try to provide in my show notes. And I publish them every day that I do the program. All I ask of you is if you would like to receive a copy of them, just share your email with me. You just click the subscribe button. It'll ask for your email. I will never share. I will never sell your email. This is just between you and me, but I would be happy to share those show notes with you so you can, can do a deeper dive into these topics at your discretion. Let's talk about what's happening right now in Canada. Got an article here from Giles Hoffman who's on the ground with the Freedom Truckers. He says, I joined the Canadian Freedom Convoy once the trucks were already firmly set in Ottawa. And he says, my time in the Canadian capital was spent gathering information specifically to document the successful as well as the failed tactics and strategies of the demonstration. Now he says, my reticence over details is necessary because whether through fate or my own persistence, I am now helping the central organization with some of their strategy and anything that I disclose publicly could be used against them. But I can give a brief overview of what is happening there. And he says, it's very important to note that the meaning of all this is still unclear. There is a very palpable sense that this is history, as many are prone to say, but no one has yet presented a historical vision and no shape has yet organically formed. Now, concerning concerning such grand narratives, there are many false directions walking through the blockade. He says it can seem as though multiple demonstrations are going on at the same time, some of which feel distinct. The protest can often seem like a textbook workers' revolution, since much of the language used by the protesters staked the working class against the bourgeoisie and other traditional enemies of the proletariat. At other times, there are intimations of 1960s counterculture, where blunts are circulated, heart-shaped signs are passed out, and placards read, live, love, freedom. The most obvious theme of the protests is state-imposed restrictions under the pretense of biomedical safety. According to this logic, once the mandates end, everyone will go home. Now, in this last case, this would mean that the protests are counter revolutionary in nature, since all the people want is to turn things back to normal. But he says any grievance has merely helped precipitate anger into material action, and anyone who claims they know what the demonstrators want in discrete terms is wrong for the same reason. They've identified positive outcomes that are expected to satisfy the demonstrators indefinitely. But the opposite is probably much closer to the truth. What do the demonstrators really want? Well, whatever it is, it's not this. Governments that put their citizens in house arrest, annihilate jobs, impose vaccines from a disreputable pharmaceutical company, sacrifice the youth to protect the old, and suppress its scientists, all while the inept lever-pullers go on vacation, attend parties, and continue to deposit checks from the taxpayer. He says, what we're seeing in Ottawa and also in hiccups around the world, is the unraveling of the post-war oligarchy, which dressed up as a liberal democracy. Indeed, we are now observing how the accumulated costs incurred by the professional class, from fleecing and lying to its citizens, results in those same citizens arriving at the government's doorstep, blowing their horns, and demanding justice. But he does offer this, this bit of hope for those who are following and cheering on the truckers, He says the regime is failing against the Freedom Convoy. As the elites panic, they escalate their efforts and resort to desperate tricks, including calling the demonstrators Nazis, booking every hotel room in Ottawa, interfering with donations, disrupting Internet service, having officers posture for five minutes in front of the press media, threatening arrests, even threatening military involvement because of the specter of foreign interference. He says it seems like Canada is going to war. But the injunctions and the municipal and provincial states of emergency have only been powerful in name, not in practice. So far, their illusions have all been all hat and no rabbit. Every obstacle in the trucker's path is circumvented. Every day that the convoy remains, the government's incompetence is revealed, and it is humiliated on the world stage. From the very beginning, some truckers were surprised they were able to drive right in front of the parliament. Internal documents from the Canadian Security Intelligence Service are equivalent to the CIA, released through an access to information request show the state and its security apparatus underestimated the size of the convoy, though any half-wit could have seen the tremendous chain of trucks that were headed their way. But the government instead wore its most stern poker face, called it a small fringe minority, without anticipating what would happen when their bluff was called. And thousands of trucks, many of which are 50,000 tons, engaged their parking brakes. The city of Ottawa then called tow truck companies across the province to help them remove the blockade. Even companies commissioned by the city refused. Not only would they destroy their professional reputations by towing these vehicles, they in fact stood in solidarity with the convoy, telling city administrators that they all had COVID. Good on them. Then the city called on the police to forcibly remove truckers and make arrests. The police released a list of crimes committed and punished. Innocuous fines for public urination and noise disturbances made up the bulk of the charges. Now here the writer says, one friend of mine who's an active officer for the Ottawa police has told me that the police feel scapegoated by the regime. Some of this resentment has been brewing for a while. The police, who are now complaining about lack of resources, acutely remember the moment two years ago when Justin Trudeau expressly supported BLM taking a knee on Parliament Hill while defund the police and ACAB, all cops are bastards, were chanted. But even more recently, on February 1st, only two days after the convoy arrived in Ottawa, several local police were put on unpaid leave because of their vaccination status. At the same time, as officers all over Parliament Hill fist-bumped and gave thumbs-up, took pictures, and openly fraternized with the protesters, the state intimated that the demonstration was an illegal occupation, and one Ottawa councillor called the demonstrators terrorists. Though all the finger-pointing and blame-setting started off in harmony, blaming truckers and their supposed influencers, including Joe Rogan and Donald Trump, now politicians are, de- are defecting, throwing each other under the bus, even castigating their own police force and foot soldiers. The military refused to get involved, arguing that they are not a police force. Then Doug Ford, the Premier of Ontario, was caught snowmobiling at his cottage and Trudeau was seen skiing instead of managing the crisis. Although the governing liberal parties in the crosshairs, the Conservative Party of Canada, a crypto-liberal institution without hope, is also a target. The leader of the official opposition resigned. They are a party without convictions. And they've encouraged the convoy and asked them to leave. Now, the bureaucratic nomenclatura is also uh, contradicting itself constantly. The official administrators say restrictions must remain because of the insuperable authority of science. And then the following day, restrictions are lessening because, once again, the science. So for fake news to be effective, the truth must remain hidden. But every smear attempt has flopped because so many people are on the ground or watching footage that isn't obviously curated. When the corporate media contrives a white supremacy angle, hundreds of non-whites within the crowd laugh while live streaming. So here are a few humble predictions. He says Ottawa was chosen for symbolic reasons, not least because it is the cradle of Canadian incompetence. Had these truckers decided to block genuine essential infrastructure as others have now? They might not have won so much public support. This support is very important because it makes the use of violence by the state costly. Now, the Trudeau government at the time of this writing seems to have only three remaining options toward the blockade on Parliament Hill. In the first scenario, maybe the regime survives, but it will be dealt a humiliating blow, one that it may not recover from. Number 1. All Levels of Government End All Mandates Now, such a concession or even negotiation with the Freedom Convoy's demands after calling the blockade insurrectionist and the will of occupiers, extremists, and white supremacists, I mean, that's politically suicidal. Number two, the regime resorts to might. If forcibly removing truckers at gunpoint becomes reality, many of whom have wives and children in their vehicle, the poorly applied veneer of democracy will finally be scrubbed off entirely. In this situation, the truckers may retreat, but the rift will grow even larger between Canadians and some other conflict will spring up in the future. Number three, their last option is to continue on their current trajectory, which is to ramp up the rhetoric in an an attempt to increase fear among the truckers while not being able to do anything material. It'll effectively be a stalemate in which only the regime loses. Now, Giles Hoffman says, look, I will hopefully continue this piece once the blockade ends and i can make some retrospective comments but he says until then we hope the freedom convoy continues to centralize the grassroots movement to hold the line defiantly to maintain morale to have some faith and to watch the main political parties succumb to the irremediable set to irremediable sepsis from self-inflicted wounds wow that's a that's a nice poetic turn of phrase this my friend is why we go to the source whenever we can don't rely on the blow dried, highly paid spinmeisters who are trying to spoon feed us whatever propaganda we're supposed to believe and nod our heads like a child. Don't do it. Any chance you get to go to the source, take that chance.
0: This is the Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian
1: Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Thanks again for being part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers. By the way, you might be a little bit surprised. I know I am. When I check the statistics, I, I, I post this program for podcast as well, so it, uh, it can be heard as far and wide as well, people have Internet access. And uh, at this point, 5% of my audience is outside of the United States. And unfortunately, you know, that 5%, it's its spread out over probably three or four dozen different countries. But it's kind of fun. It's fun to see that uh, there are people concerned about the cause of freedom. There are people concerned about, you know, simply living a happy, productive life and not marinating in all the political melodrama drama every minute of their lives. So I'm grateful to do what I do. Very thankful to share this information with you. And, and I hope... Above all, that it's not adding more fear or more anger to an already uh, volatile world in which most of us are just simply trying to do our best and and not get uh, pulled down by, by the whirlpool. I want to talk for a moment about how the, one of the problems with our system of innumerable laws is that sometimes when you just keep adding laws on laws on laws, you tend to create criminals where there were none before. And this is where it's essential you and I at least have a basic understanding that, uh, you know, not all laws are the same. In fact, most of what we have to deal with is legislation, which differs from law in that law is usually based in histo- history and tradition and, uh, and principle. It's been around for a long time. Legislation is just politicians' words on paper. But even among the, the laws passed by legislatures, you have two distinct classes of laws. Mala and Say laws are laws that address an act that on its face is evil, arson, rape, murder, assault, theft. These are acts in which there is a clear victim any time that crime is committed. And most people would agree, most reasonable people would say, yeah, you know, if this person injures you or injures your property, they've committed a crime. And of course, you know, one of the things that makes it a crime is someone does it with the intent to harm another person. Now, on the other side of the coin, you have MALA laws. And this is really the epitome of politicians' words on paper. Thou shalt not do this, you know, because we don't want you to do it. This is what describes the vast majority of our laws. Consider the case of a mom who is now facing years in prison for letting her 14-year-old babysit her siblings. Lenore Skenazy has this article, It Shouldn't Be a Crime to Let Your Teen Babysit. Listen to this. When COVID-19 suddenly shut down her children's daycare in May of 2020 and Melissa Henderson had to go to work, she asked her 14-year-old daughter, Lindley, to babysit the four younger siblings. Now, Lindley was remote lear- remote learning, so she was doing Zoom school, when her youngest brother, Thaddeus, age four, spied his friend outside and went over to play with him. It was about 10 or 15 minutes before Lindley realized he was missing, must be at his buddy's house, and she went to fetch him. Well, in the meantime, the buddy's mom had called the police. Nice move, Mom. Now Henderson, a single mom in Blairsville, Georgia, is facing criminal reckless conduct charges for having her 14-year-old babysit. The charges carry a maximum possible penalty of one year in prison and a fine of $1,000. The arresting officer, Sergeant Mark Pilote, wrote in his report that anything terrible could have happened to Thaddeus, including being kidnapped, run over, or bitten by a venomous snake. Wow, I wonder if he writes fiction in his spare time, or if he just deals with things that actually happened. Anyway, the Hendersons live on a quiet lane, surrounded by what looks like acres of lawn. Blairsville population, 794. Now, this case has dragged on for almost two years now, while Henderson's lawyer, David DeLugas, points out that Georgia's own child protective guidelines say that kids at age 13 can babysit. DeLugas is founder of Parents USA, which exists to fight just such cases. Three weeks ago, he filed a motion to dismiss the case based on a paper by Idaho law professor David Pimentel, protecting the free-range kid, recalibrating parents' rights and the best interest of the child. Pimentel wrote, quote, Fueled by the growing obsession with child safety in our society, police now appear to be responding whenever someone who disapproves of another's parenting skills calls 911 and reports an endangered child, end quote. To which Lenore Skenazy says, bingo. It's far too easy to accuse a parent of neglect and get the authorities involved. So in Henderson's case, five cop cars came to her house. She told Lenore Skenazy in a phone call, I almost don't have words for how low it made me feel. They handcuffed Henderson, they drove her to the county jail where she was photographed, fingerprinted, and put on a, and given a bright pair of orange Crocs to wear. Then she was put in a cell. She says, I remember curling up in a ball in the corner and just wanting to hide. Her ex-husband bailed her out. Now, Skenazy says, when I spoke with the district attorney, Jeff Langley, he says he felt the cops acted prudently as the little boy had been outside once before on his own. He added that even a guilty verdict would most likely not result in prison time for Henderson, but he thought that forbidding her from letting her daughter babysit might be a good idea. We just want to make sure the children in our small community stay safe. Sorry. (laughs) You want to talk about bureaucratic boilerplate? We're just trying to keep you safe as we ruin your life. A few more details. Langley believed the boy was wandering naked in a thunderstorm. That was one part true. The boy was wearing only a shirt, but there was no storm. The DA added that officers informed him that 14-year-old Lindley had some measure of learning disability, making her an unreliable sitter. Now, Henderson explained to Lenore Skenazy that her daughter had officially been diagnosed with ADHD. And yet has a GPA of four point four five, is vice president of the 4-H Club, broke school records in varsity track, completed the Red Cross Childcare Program, and is certified in CPR. My goodness, she's barely functioning. Nonetheless, it shouldn't be necessary to have a superstar team before a parent can make hasty child care arrangements during a pandemic. That's why Led Grow, the nonprofit that Lenore Scanesi runs, is working to narrow states' neglect laws ensuring they only kick in when parents put their kids in likely and obvious danger. Not when they make a decision a cop or a caseworker disapproves of. As for the incident itself, four is young, and you'd want to remind the boy next time don't go out without telling anyone. But a kid wandering off to play with the neighbor used to be called childhood. Got a link to this article, and I hope you'll, you'll click on it and let that sink in. My goodness. Look, I, I, I don't want to confess how terrible my parenting skills were, but my little boy David, who's now six foot three and about 220 pounds, he ran off when he was about two years old. And he he slipped out of the house. My gosh, he was so slippery. This, I was on the phone and David was following him from place to place, crying. I, my wife was, was visiting someone or she was going to a church calling or something like that. And anyway, I'm on the phone talking to, I think I was talking to my mom and David just kept following me from, from place to place in the house, you know, crying. And I was just like, dude, stop, just go play, go play. Well, I finally stepped into my room and shut the door, finished my conversation, came out about five minutes later and was like, okay, it's quiet. Where's David? And I couldn't find him. I looked all through the house, couldn't find him, looked at my back door and realized, Ooh, The deadbolt, which he couldn't reach, was unlocked. And I thought, is it possible? Could he have slipped out the back door? And sure enough, he had, and in his diaper, was wandering down to the end of our cul-de-sac. And uh, I raced down there as quick as I could. And sure enough, there's three, I'm sorry to use this word, but I'm, I'm making a judgment, three stoners standing there, dude, do you know whose kid this is? I'm like, yes, he's mine. And these guys started lecturing me. You got to keep a closer eye on your kid, man. He wandered away. And I was like, thank you. Very grateful that they were the ones who, who found him and prevented him from wandering closer to a busy road. But my point is this. Things can happen quickly. And yes, sometimes it can end in tragedy. But to just make it a default thing, somebody could very easily have called the cops on me and, and I felt horrible that uh, that my kid had wandered off. But we got to go by, was there harm done? Not just, well, you know, did you put him in danger? I didn't intentionally put him in danger, but I dang sure, you know, shut him out for a few minutes and, and in that time he slipped away. It was a wake-up call and I realized, okay, I gotta start paying closer attention, and you know probably should just have ended the call and you know tended to him criminalizing the idea of well, your kids you know they can't watch they can't watch till they've certified and passed this, even with the best laws and even with the best intentions, there are still going to be times when tragedies are going to occur, and we can do the best we can to mitigate the circumstances, but to try and create criminals where there were no criminals before. That's not the way to do it. And it drives a further wedge between the police and the public. And, you know, I don't know. I, I, I wouldn't recommend it as an idea of, uh, of this is going to make us a better society and we're just trying to keep people safe. I think what it encourages is more of a predatory attitude on the part of prosecutors and police to develop kind of a gotcha attitude. And that's that's not good. Thanks for tuning in today. Check out the show notes at the Brian Hyde show.com. Feel free to subscribe to those show notes if you're so inclined.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny, And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian
1: Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Hey, whether you are a uh, an experienced wrong thinker or you're just a little bit wrong think curious, I thank you for giving us a chance today. I've been through my red meat throwing phase, kind of got over that a little while ago. I am here to hopefully shed some light on the world as it is, but that does not imply you have to believe everything that I say, because this is about encouraging you to think for yourself as clearly and independently when confronting the events that are going on around us. But I want you to also take it one step further. I want you to realize it's not enough just to nod your head and, okay, well, I can see what's going on here. I want you to recognize that each one of us, no matter how modest you're being about your, you know, abilities, each one of us has the potential to change the world for the better. We all have a circle of influence, and one of the greatest things that we can do is to use that influence wisely. No matter where we happen to be standing, that's what I want to encourage you to step up and do. My program is brought to you by great sponsors. They include well, let's let's talk about. SewingandQuiltingCenter.com. Not only will you find everything you need in terms of sewing machines, uh, embroidery machines, long arm quilting machines, but you will also find all the necessary uh, material and thread and and supplies that go with it, and service to take care of those machines. It's really worth your time to to check them out online. SewingandQuiltingCenter.com. They clean and service most brands of sewing, embroidery, and long-arm machines. Now, this is going to be particularly of interest to my listeners in southern Utah, which is where Sewing and Quilting Center is located. Click on the link, show them some love, send them a message, let them know, hey, heard Brian talking about you. They'll appreciate it, and I'll appreciate it as well. Well, as hard as it may be to believe, there are still people out there defending the lockdowns. And Jeffrey Tucker from the Brownstone Institute has a great article that uh, describes exactly why some of these folks are trying to defend the indefensible. He says 15 years ago, writers schooled in computer science begin to imagine various totalitarian schemes for pandemic control. Experienced public health officials in 2006 warned that that would lead to disaster. David Henderson, for example, went through the whole list of possible restrictions, shooting them down one by one, and he links to this list in his article. Still, a decade and a half later, Tucker says governments all over the world tried lockdowns anyway. And sure enough, since April of 2020, scholars have observed that these lockdown policies haven't worked. The politicians preached, the cops enforced, citizens shamed each other, businesses and and schools did their best to comply with all the strictures, but the virus kept going with seeming disregard for all these antics. Neither oceans of sanitizer, nor towers of plexiglass, nor covered mouths and noses, nor crowd avoidance, nor the seeming magic of six feet of distance, nor even mandated injections, caused the virus to go away or otherwise be suppressed. So the evidence is in. Restrictions are not associated with any particular set of virus mitigation goals. Forty studies, and yes, he links to that to those studies, have shown no connection between the policy and its egregious violations of human liberty and the intended outcomes, which would have been diminishing the overall disease impact of the pathogen. Now, Jeffrey Tucker says you can forget all about causal inference here because there's an absence of correlation of policy and outcomes at all. In fact he says you can do a deeper dive and find 400 studies which again he links to showing that the impositions of basic freedoms did not uh, basic freedom restrictions did not achieve the intended result but instead produced terrible public health outcomes 2 years the 2 years of hell into which hundreds of governments simultaneously plunged the globe achieved nothing but economic social and cultural destruction Now, very obviously, he says, this realization is shocking and suggests a crying need for a reassessment of the power and influence of the people who did this. And this reassessment is happening now, all over the world. A major frustration for those of us who've denounced lockdowns, which goes by many names and takes many forms, is that these studies haven't exactly rocked the headlines. In fact, they've been buried for the better part of two years. Among the ignored studies was a December 2020 examination of light and voluntary measures like discouraging large gatherings or isolating the sick or generally being careful versus heavy and forced measures. Now, he says this piece by Bendavid et al. observed some of the effects on the spread of light measures on the spread from light measures rather, but nothing statistically significant from the heavy measures like stay at home or shelter in place orders. Listen to this quote. We do not question the role of all public health interventions or of coordinated communications about the pandemic, but we fail to find an additional benefit of stay-at-home orders and business closures. The data cannot fully exclude the possibility of some benefits. However, even if they exist, these benefits may not match the numerous harms of these aggressive measures. More targeted public health interventions that more effectively reduce transmissions may be important for future epidemic control without the harms of highly restricted measures. End quote. Now, Jeffrey Tucker says the most recent meta analysis from Johns Hopkins University seems to have achieved some, of the me- some measure of media attention, but this one focuses in particular on the effects of heavy interventions on mortality, finding little to no relationship between policies and severe disease outcomes. The attention given to this meta-analysis seems to have annoyed the small cabal of academics who still defend lockdowns. A website called Health Feedback blasted the methods of the study while citing biased sources and not seriously grappling with the results. This lame effort has been thoroughly smashed by Phil Magnus. Also seeking to reverse the bad press against lockdowns, the Science Media Center, a project that appears mostly funded by the Wellcome Trust, that's Britain's major funding source for epidemiological studies, published a rebuttal of this paper by top lockdown proponents. Now among the comments were those of Oxford's Seth Flaxman, a major figure in this realm, who's not trained in biological science or medicine, but computer science with a specialization in machine learning. And yet it has been his work that has been most often cited in defense of the ideas that lockdowns achieved some good. In opposition to the Johns Hopkins University study, Flaxman writes, quote, "...smoking causes cancer, cancer. the earth is round, and ordering people to stay at home, the correct definition of lockdown, decreases disease transmission. None of this is controversial among scientists." A study purporting to prove the opposite is almost certain to be fundamentally flawed. End quote. Now, Jeffrey Tucker says, you see how this rhetoric works? If you question his claim, you are not a scientist. You are denying the science. Now, he says these sentences are surely penned out of frustration. The first time in modern history, or perhaps all of history, when nearly all governments undertook ordering people to stay home which amounts to a universal quarantine to decrease transmission of of a disease, was in 2020. Now to say that this is not controversial is ridiculous, since such policies had never before been attempted on this scale. Such a policy is not at all like an established causal claim smoking increases cancer risk, nor a mere empirical observation the earth is round. It's subject to verification. And Jeffrey Tucker says there are plenty of reasons one might expect disease transmission to be higher in enclosed spaces with sustained close contacts, such as homes versus shops or even well-ventilated concert settings. As Henderson himself said, it could result in putting healthy non-infected people in close settings with infected people, worsening disease spread. In fact, by December of 2020, the governor's office of New York found that contact tracing data shows 70% of new COVID-19 cases Originate from households and small gatherings. It was also true with New York hospitalization. Two thirds of them had contracted COVID at home. They're not working, they're not traveling, Cuomo said of these recently hospitalized coronavirus patients. We were thinking that maybe we were going to find a higher percentage of essential employees who were getting sick because they were going to work. That these may be nurses, doctors, transit workers. That's not the case. They were predominantly at home. Now that Flaxman would claim otherwise after all experience shows shows uh, that he's not observing reality but inventing dogma from his own tuition. Flaxman might say that he's sure the transmission might have been higher had people not been ordered to stay home. That there might be settings in which that, there, that, that would be true. But he's in no position to elevate this claim to the status of Earth is round. Now Tucker goes on a bit more but the bottom line here is. Lockdown policies are easily marketed to political players who might get a power rush from the exercise. But in the end, Henderson's Henderson's prediction rather was correct. These interventions turned into turned a manageable pandemic into a catastrophe. And it's a sure bet that lockdown proponents will be in denial for at least another decade. Somebody was asking the question over the weekend. What is it that there's still people, you know, putting masks on kids? Why are there still places that are demanding the use of masks, you know, as a condition of entry into the business? And it's just my opinion, but I think it's they're trying to make people. They're trying to make the people in charge feel like they're still in charge. Those who are enforcing these mask mandates.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian
1: Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I've got one for you. This uh, <clears throat> I'm starting to see a few headlines, but I don't know that the mainstream press is going to really want to cover this one very much. What was the genesis for the worldwide lockdowns two years ago? It's funny, I just had something pop up on my Facebook memories, and this was from February of, of 2020, Valentine's Day. And it was something along the lines of roses are red, violets are blue. SARS-CoV-19 is coming for you. And, you know, at that time, we really had no idea other than, uh, boy, there sure seems to be a lot of fear mongering and a lot of a lot of panic spreading. But have you ever considered how was it that so many nations like in the last segment, Jeffrey Tucker talks about they took this unprecedented action of locking down their society, something that historically you will not find evidence for not on the scale that it was done for COVID-19. Where did that idea come from? Well, a really good friend sent me a, a link over the weekend, and it's it's to a thread reader, thread from uh, Michael P. Sanger. And it uh, refers to a New York Times article behind China's Twitter campaign, a murky supporting chorus. And it seems to show that the Chinese Communist Party launched a massive social media campaign in Italy to advertise its coronavirus lockdown measures in early March of 2020. I'm going to walk you through a couple of these. And look, I don't know if this is going to sound like conspiracy to you, but this sure looks like a smoking gun when you consider the totality of all the efforts that went into this uh, this mass or this uh, social media campaign. So in in this uh, article or in this uh, thread by Michael Sanger, it says the fact that the CCP's disinformation campaign focused on Italy is crucial. Why? Because Italy was the first country outside of China to lock down. And once Italy locked down, the rest of the world followed Italy's lead. Now, the CCP's campaign wasn't limited to Italy. The article states that this tweet advertising China's lockdown policy to the world is fake. So it's a fake tweet, but it still has 142,000 likes. Tweets like this prove that the CCP was actively selling the world on Wuhan-style lockdowns back in early March. Now, if you search for the URL of that fake tweet, you'll find it retweeted by many accounts around the world. Each account is suspicious because they tweet incessantly about COVID right up until George Floyd's death, and then all they tweet about is BLM. Now, the sheer scale of this operation and the number of accounts involved in its influence around the world is really remarkable. Thousands of accounts of accounts tweeting incessantly about COVID hysteria, then pivoting to incessant BLM and anti-police propaganda in every country. I mean, that is quite a coincidence, isn't it? The day after Paul Moser's New York Times article was published, Twitter suspended over 170,000 fake Chinese accounts but none of the fake accounts involved in the ring described above were suspended. So this is a problem much larger than Twitter acknowledges. More than 50 NIH scientists were fired due to China ties, hundreds more under investigation. By co-opting scientists and academics while aggressively promoting lockdowns through social media propaganda, China made lockdown pseudoscience seem sound. And though the CCP, though through C, let's try that again, though CCP's influence operations in media, politics and academia were surreptitious, its stance in support of global adoption of COVID lockdowns was explicit. Here's China's foreign spokesperson promoting strict social distancing among children. If this seven year old girl has the common sense, why some adults don't? In a speech at the Hudson Hudson Institute, FBI Director Chris Ray says CCP specifically approached local politicians to endorse its COVID lockdowns. Here's a tweet from Jeff Selden. We had a state senator who was recently even asked to introduce a resolution supporting China's response to the COVID-19 pandemic. This is from July of 2020. In fact, we have heard... From federal, state, and even local officials, that Chinese diplomats are aggressively urging support for China's handling of the COVID-19 crisis. Yes, this is happening at both the federal and state levels. Now, what follows is a collage that's just a tiny sample of the fake account CCP used to popularize COVID lockdowns. In these tweets... CCP sends its regards to the world by by denigrating every other government in the world, using many dialects and contrasting them with its authoritarian success. And there's a ton of tweets, but you can can take a look at them. These tweets were easily identified using leads in Paul Mazur's New York Times article. And here, hundreds of fake accounts whine about washing their hands while China locks down. Nearly identical tweets are made in many languages. Twitter responded the following day by saying they'd removed 170,000 accounts in this campaign, but Twitter lied. These fake CCP accounts and presumably hundreds of thousands of others are still doing CCP's bidding. And then there's a whole series of fake French tweets. Now, in cooperation with the FBI, the National Science Foundation reports between 14 and 18 cases of undisclosed China financial ties. This in addition to the 175 cases of undisclosed China financial ties earlier reported by the NIH, a much larger organization. Sweden, partly due to its own COVID-19 response, has been a prime target of a Chinese campaign portraying Western democracies as weak against the threat. Sweden is one of the few countries, if you recall, that ordered no lockdown and put its faith in herd immunity. I mean, this is a pretty lengthy thread, and it it's it's a whole bunch of different tweets. But there's a lot of evidence within those tweets, videos, and articles that uh, are really top-notch and raises a really big question about, my goodness, why did China go to all of that effort? I've heard rumors, and, and I don't know if this is, is anything beyond rumors, so I'm kind of hesitant to even share it, but... If there's truth to this, it really needs to be brought out into the light of day. And I've heard that even governors were approached by, and I think in this case, the federal government, and offered billions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars in aid if they would just toe the line on the lockdowns. And given the way that so many, even ostensibly, you know, Republican, hey, freedom-oriented, I understand the proper role of government kind of governors... They fell into line, they obediently rolled over and showed their bellies. I mean, it would make sense politicians you know they they want the money, they want the the idea that look, we did something. We saved you, but it sure sounds like there was a lot of manipulation going on here. one of the one of the tweets here points out Boris Johnson over in Britain initially opted for herd immunity, but on March thirteenth, four days after Italy's lockdown. CCP started storming his feed, likening his plan to genocide. Those words almost never appear in his feed before March 12th. Tragically, the abuse worked. March 23rd, the UK locked down. I hope you'll take the time to at least just scroll through this and take a look at it. I'm not trying to gin up any kind of, you know, anti-Chinese sentiment, but this sure looks like China had a much bigger hand in uh, not only, you know, the development of this virus and the research that was done at the Wuhan viral uh, lab for viral research or whatever it's called, but it sure appears that they had quite a hand in influencing how other government leaders would approach it and approach it in a, an, an unprecedented manner in the sense that never before, had the world chosen to simply lock down societies and destroy economies in the name of, well, we're trying to uh, prevent, you know, the spread of a particular virus. Again, I I don't share this with you with the idea of, boy, now you can go sharpen up your pitchfork and get those torches lit and woo-wee, let's (laughs) let's go, you know, get some vengeance here. But I do share it with the idea that uh, the mendacity of some of the people that are supporting those heavy-handed measures, it appears to be a real thing. And I would say we are, we, we would be wise not to underestimate that kind of mendacity and don't ever let them exercise that kind of power again.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The
1: Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. Quick shout-out here to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, located in St. George, Utah. You know, there are many choices when it comes to finding a mortgage lender, but I want to specifically recommend the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage for this reason. Heather is the best. She is simply the best at what she does. She has been in the business for decades. She has uh, an organization that has the clout to get you the loan you need, and she can make it happen when time is of the essence, which in a very competitive real estate market, it really is of the essence. Contact Heather by calling 435-703-4522. Her NMLS ID is 715386. And Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. You know what's worse than rapidly rising inflation? something that I think all of us are getting a little lesson in every time we go to the store. The thing that's worse than rapidly rising inflation rather, is government rushing to our rescue with things like antitrust laws and price controls. Got a great article here from Kat Dwyer. This was published on the American Institute for Economic Research. Scapegoating inflation will only make it worse. She writes, Inflation is no longer officially uh, transitory. The Consumer Price Index has hit its highest rate in four decades, running at 7.5% year-over-year. The Energy Index rose 27% over the last year. The Food Index increased 7%. The higher prices are affecting Americans with every purchase they make and undercutting their wages. Inflation is even challenging COVID as voters' number one issue of concern, and the president's response? Deflection. Now, in an effort to skirt responsibility for the inflation he once said was both not happening and only transitory, President Biden and his Democratic supporters are crying collusion. It's big poultry, rather, or big grocers or big oil that have spontaneously colluded to raise prices on their consumers, motivated purely by greed. And like many policy proposals from the left these days, Democrats have turned for a solution to a 20th century relic, specifically antitrust and price controls. Now, Kat Dwyer writes, it's true that four major companies dominate the meatpacking industry for beef, pork, and poultry. But she says, don't be fooled into thinking these companies are colluding with each other to raise prices. A much simpler answer than conspiracy and collusion can be found. All of the inputs to their product have risen in cost, from fertilizer and feed to gasoline and labor. And when the cost of a product's inputs rise, well, so does the price of the final product. Now, on the fuel front, the increase in price can be explained by a mismatch of supply and demand. Demand plummeted during the COVID lockdowns. Supply was diminished. And now that with demand for oil surging again worldwide, supply is slow to catch up. The administration signaling that it wants to phase out fossil fuels doesn't encourage new investment in production either. Now, she says it's worth noting that when the price of fuel rises, so does the price of just about everything else. Why is this? Well, because we're still an economy dependent on fossil fuels to power not only the transport of our goods, but also the production of those goods. Antitrust action to break up the large corporations that provide fuel and food will not lead to lower prices for consumers. These corporations are able to offer lower prices precisely because of their consolidation. As they consolidate and grow larger, they achieve economies of scale by lowering the average cost of each unit they produce. Likewise, increasing the regulatory oversight on corporations increases the cost of doing business, a cost that invariably gets passed on to consumers. I got to tip my hat, Kat, That is, That is a wonderful lesson in economics right there, that paragraph. Now, she says, similarly, price controls would be a devastating blow to consumers. When the price of a good is artificially set low, shortages follow. That's because if a producer cannot make a decent return on their product, they're going to stop producing it. And why wouldn't they? It's not greed motivating their actions. That's the bottom line. No producer is going to lose money on each unit sold and stay in business. So if it isn't corporate greed that's driving inflation, then what is it? Well, she says inflation has two primary culprits. Supply disruptions and reckless monetary policy. Now, supply-side inflation is the result of bottlenecks slowing the delivery of goods and services. Demand-side inflation derives from expansionary monetary policy pursued by the Federal Reserve. An obvious but often unacknowledged contributor to our supply chain woes is the government's response to the pandemic. When businesses were forced to close, supply was decimated. Many businesses never came back. A Federal Reserve study estimates that roughly 200,000 more businesses closed in the first year of the pandemic alone. That number is about one-third higher than the normal market exit. These closures obviously disrupted the equilibrium between supply and demand. Those who did hang on did so in part by selling off inventory and laying off workers. That means when demand surged, once the more draconian government restrictions were lifted, supply had to play catch-up. And once employers were looking to restaff, they learned that surprisingly there were fewer people willing to work. There are currently 10.9 million job openings in the U.S. with a labor participation rate of 62.2%. This labor shortage is driven in part by federal and state unemployment uh, benefits on top of other forms of transfer payments like the child tax credit, also rental assistance and direct payments from Presidents Trump and Biden. All of these subsidies create a disincentive to work. Cat Dwyer writes, many who oppose the Biden administration often decry his multi-trillion dollar spending bills. And while it's true that those government dollars are less productive than private dollars, and rather than stimulate long-term economic growth, they simply boost short-term competition. They aren't what's driving inflation. She says the type of persistent inflation we're witnessing today is, as Milton Friedman famously said, always and everywhere, a monetary phenomenon. Government subsidies and stimulus spending might goose demand, and when supply is limited, that's certainly a problem. But to thwart long-term inflation, we must turn our attention to the Fed's monetary policy. The Federal Reserve is charged with promoting maximum employment, stable prices, and moderate long-term interest rates and uses monetary policy to achieve these ends. The Fed can boost employment, at least temporarily, by increasing the growth rate of money. It can reduce inflation by reducing the growth rate of money. To ensure that long-term interest rates are not too high, it must prevent money growth from outpacing money demand by too wide a margin on average over time. Now, that's a careful line to walk for the Fed. Over the last few months, supply constraints and a rise in nominal spending has left too many dollars chasing too few goods. For context, the money supply has increased by an eye-watering 40% over the past two years as a result of the Fed's expansionary monetary policy. High inflation is the natural consequence. The Fed could bring down inflation by cutting the growth rate of money, and it can accomplish this by raising the interest it pays banks on reserve balances or drastically reducing the size of its balance sheet to hit a higher federal funds target rate, rate target rather. But politicians are concerned that the Fed will take away the punch bowl, so to speak, too rapidly, thus slowing economic growth and triggering a recession. This is certainly possible, And it's what we saw with Paul Volcker's scrupulous Fed in the 1980s. The short-term downturn hurt, no doubt, but inflation was thwarted and economic growth rebounded. Kat Dwyer says one could argue, however, that the growth the Fed's expansionary monetary policies are promoting now is inequitable and further widens the divide between the top and bottom earners in this country. That's because the Fed's asset purchases pump up the stock market at the expense of low-income savers who do not invest in the stock market. She says when interest rates are near zero, putting money into a savings account yields virtually no return. Incentivizing investment in the stock market It's part of the reason corporations have seen such large gains in their value over the course of the pandemic. It's government action distorting the market, not corporate collusion that's leading to the wealth creation so many Democrats decry. Now, the president might not be willing to acknowledge this economic reality for political reasons, but even Fed Chairman or Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell does, indicating the economy no longer needs stimulus, and the Fed should therefore begin to taper its asset purposes, purchases rather and raise interest rates to slow inflation. And because inflation eats away at workers' wages by making every item they buy with those wages more expensive, Reining in this monetary policy would reduce inflation and benefit, not harm the poorest among us. She concludes by writing, are the threat of antitrust action and flirtation with price controls, cheap throwaway lines recycled from the 20th century meant solely to get the administration through the next news cycle, or are they serious proposals emerging from the increasingly radical, progressive flank of the Democratic Party? Kat Dwyer says, for the sake of the economy and your grocery bill, let's hope it's the former. If the administration really wants to tackle inflation, it needs the Fed to rein in its reckless monetary policy. There is so much good information in this article, and even if you're not really into, you know, studying monetary policy or economics, it's worth reading and rereading this article just to to get your mind around some of the basic concepts that are at play. I've got a link in the show notes. I hope you'll check it out. In fact, I hope you'll... uh, internalize the information, and then share this with your friends. This is very solid information. Stay with us. We've got another segment yet to go. We'll be back right after these messages.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The
1: Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Thanks again for being part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers. And I'd like to ask a small favor. If you find value in this program, just tell somebody about it. Just suggest, hey, give it a try. You know, and it's it's totally okay if they say, hey, that's not for me. That guy is too smooth and too sexy. I just don't think I could stand to listen to him. That's fine. You know, I've I've been told other horrible things like that, and I'm 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 okay with it. It's uh it's I'm sorry. It's it's a it's a message that not everybody is looking for, but I I speak about the things that I that I share with you and I I take the stance that I do as nonpartisan and as principle based as possible because I believe long term and short term these things matter. And I know that there are people out there for whom truth is a top priority, as well as things like freedom and, and uh, the ability to exercise their freedom of conscience, particularly. These are things that really seem to be under attack lately. So in a small way, I'm doing what I can to, to push back, to provide, you know, a, a source of, of truth and, and reason, you know, in a time where it's, it's apparently kind of going out of fashion. But I don't mind being out of step with what the crowd is doing. I'm guessing that if you're listening to this program, you probably don't mind either. Got a couple quick articles I want to share. Um, I'm just going to just touch on this one very briefly. Got a very quick truth bomb for you. This is from a friend who sent me an article over the weekend. Most of the world's problems are caused by people who think that they know how other people should live. And I'm not big into dividing people up into camps and putting labels, all right, you belong here and you're over there, and you know, thanks to these labels we can keep everybody, you know, keep track of you. But I think if if you had to classify human beings into some category, decent or indecent, is probably the, the really really the only dividing line that there is. But I also want to make this observation those who think that they know what's best and they should be able to dictate how other people should live are more often than not going to be found on the indecent side of that line why because they seem to be prone to using force and coercion to get people to do whatever they think is best and while that may seem like kind of a contemporary problem you know depending on whatever is you know the conflict may be i'm going to submit to you that uh, i think this is more of an eternal battle that has been going on forever Between light and darkness, darkness prefers coercion. Darkness prefers that everybody be forced to do what those who know best know is best. Whereas light is more prone towards persuasion, love, freely chosen, voluntary actions that are virtuous. There's a world of difference between those things. So with that in mind, if the world's problems or most of the world's problems are being caused by people who think they know how other people should live... How do you deal with something like that when you've got something going on like we are seeing right now, uh, the way the the, uh, political class is currently waging war against, uh, for instance, red states? Just a couple of examples. There's economic terrorism, unleashing OSHA to destroy all businesses that won't enforce vaccine mandates by levying fines of $70,000 a day or higher. There's engineered medicine shortages. The Biden administration recently announced restrictions on shipping monoclonal antibodies to red states in order to maximize COVID fatalities in those states. There's, of course, the vaccine mandates themselves. The border invasion, the Biden regime and its corrupt Department of Justice actively fighting against border security, openly allowing a land invasion of states like Texas and Arizona in order to flood the nation with replacement Democrat voters and actually moving them, you know, flying them or busing them around the, the, the country. There's money-printing madness. Every dollar printed by the Fed and distributed by the Treasury is actually an instrument of debt that steals purchasing power from hard-working Americans who produce things. There's election rigging. Biden and other Democrats like Gavin Newsom are now institutionalizing never-ending election rigging in order to make sure the will of the people is never honored in any election. Although their own disastrous policies are wildly unpopular, they can continue to maintain power by cheating in elections. And Lou Rockwell says just like they cheated in 2020. Boom, there it is. Outlawing of medicine that works. Notice how the D.C. swamp has attacked ivermectin and made sure that no hospital prescribes it to patients? That's part of a medical genocide agenda, and he says it's a war on humanity. And of course, punitive taxation. Under the Biden regime, which is actually run by Obama, the IRS will be handed a mandate to raise taxes on productive American workers, punishing them for having jobs, all the while handing out more welfare and entitlements to the illegals who are allowed to to invade America by the hundreds of thousands each month. Now, here's the solution that he proposes, and this is going to make some people have a little reaction, so brace yourself. Lou Rockwell says, We clearly have a disunion not a union today. And we would be better to recognize this and act accordingly. When the Constitution was up for ratification, the Anti-Federalists pointed to the danger. In fact, Murray Rothbard quotes one of the most eloquent of them, Patrick Henry, shall we imitate the example of those nations who have gone from a simple to a splendid government? Are those nations more worthy of our imitation? What can make an adequate satisfaction to them for the loss they've suffered in attaining such a government? For the loss of their liberty? If we admit this consolidated government, it will be because we like a great, splendid one. Some way or other, we must be a great and mighty empire. We must have an army and a navy. When the American spirit was, its, was in its youth, the language of America was different. Liberty, sir, was then the primary object. But now, sir, the American spirit, assisted by the ropes and chains of consolidation, is about to convert this country into a powerful and mighty empire. Such a government is incompatible with the genius of republicanism. There will be no checks, no real balances in this government. What can avail your specious imaginary balances, your rope-dancing, chain-rattling, ridiculous ideal checks and contrivances? But, sir, we are not feared by foreigners. We do not na- make nations tremble. Would this constitute happiness or secure liberty? End quote. Now, he was an anti-federalist, and dang, it looks like he was right. So here's the bottom line. The Federalists thought they knew better. And Lou Rockwell says they gave us such nonsense as Madison's claim that extended government was a cure for faction, not one of its main causes. And he says the tragic re- result of their efforts was the terrible war between the states. He says let's not make that mistake again. Let's try peaceful secession while there is still time. Oh, I know. It's That's like lighting a firecracker and running away. But I think that's that's a concept worth some exploration. Perhaps we'll do it in a future show. All right, one final note here. This is from Roger Kimball from americangreatness.com, amgreatness.com. The oligarchy's response to the Freedom Convoy bodes ill for them. And it's kind of chilling to see him reference this, but he says the the deposition of Canada's prime minister is unlikely to be as sanguinary or as bloody as the Ceucescos in uh, Romania, but it will be no less definitive. This was written on February 12th, just a couple of days ago, and he says, as I write, Canadian police, many dressed in military garb and supported by armored vehicles and snipers, are moving in to enforce several court orders and demands of Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, Ontario Premier Doug Ford and others that the freedom convoy of American of sorry Canadian truckers stop blocking the Ambassador Bridge the major artery between the US and Canada and disperse Some of the protesters are leaving while many are standing their ground He asks will the heavy hand of the state succeed in crushing the protest And the answer is in the short term perhaps But he says the the problem here is, and and it's not just, you know, Justin Trudeau, but it includes people like U.S. Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg, Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer, and other political mannequins. When they start berating the truckers and threatening all kinds of dire retribution, they are showing signs of impotence, not strength. And he says that impotence comes in long-term and short-term varieties. Long-term, he says, I think Tucker Carlson's right. Official Officialdom's response to the Freedom Convoys, a desperate effort to put the genie of liberty back into the bottle. But ultimately, it will not work. But on the way to that failure, there will be plenty of opportunities for the coercive power of the state to manifest itself. Roger Kimball says, perhaps this regime will manage to disband this upsurge of discontent. But if so, the discontent itself is not going to dissipate. It will fester and spread. He says, preposterous beta males like Justin Trudeau are happy to bluster and threaten. For now, the military and security services, most of them remain loyal. But he says, I recommend that uh, Fidel, Phils, or (laughs) Trudeau, read up on the fate of the Ceausescu's. The deposition of Canada's prime minister is unlikely to be so sanguinary, granted, but he says, I suspect it will be no less definitive. This is why I say we are living through a truly historic pivot point right now. And I have no idea how it's going to turn out. I know which side I want to be on, and that is the side of liberty. I want to be on the side of that uh, which, which stands for the inherent God-given rights of every individual. I suspect we all have a decision like that to make soon. This is The Brian Hyde Show.